Welcome back to our series on the book of Revelation as we look to see what Revelation has to tell us about having certain comfort in uncertain times. Today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna. It's always funny to me in TV shows when they put the main character in some kind of danger and try and make it all dramatic as though there's a chance the main character won't survive. My favorite example of this is the Magnum P.I. episode, Home from the Sea, where he's out in the middle of the ocean on his surf ski and gets tipped over by a wave from a passing boat, and the surf ski goes out, drifts away from him, and he is left alone in the middle of the ocean, and he spends the whole episode treading water. And they try and make it seem as though there's a chance that Magnum might not survive this episode, that he might not get rescued, that he might drown at sea because he's too tired to tread water. Except that episode was the season premiere of season four. And so as the viewer, you know that Magnum is going to survive, that they're not going to kill off their main title character in the first episode of a new season. You know that by the end of the episode, everything will get neatly wrapped up in a bow and everything will be great. Because that's what Hollywood does. It wraps everything up nicely in a neat little bow. Everything happens for a reason in every TV show and movie. And it's sure to give you that reason before the episode or movie is over. Because that's what we as the viewers want. We want to know that everything happens for a reason. We want there to be a happy ending. We want all of the loose ends to be tied together before the hour is over. And of course, the Bible, however, rarely offers such nice and neat conclusions to the sufferings of its people. We are not always told the reason why things happen to people in Scripture, nor are stories always neatly resolved and tied up in a bow. Perhaps the most common example in Scripture is that of Job, who in the midst of great suffering received neither help in his suffering nor a reason for his suffering. But what he did receive was God. By the end of the book, he still doesn't know why he suffered. But he is given a revelation of who God is and of his sovereignty over all things, including his suffering. And that's essentially what we see in today's passage in Christ's letter or oracle to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And so if you have your Bibles open, please follow along as I read. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. We don't know a whole lot about the church at Smyrna. This oracle to it is the only mention of the church in all of Scripture. But the little that we know is that they were a suffering church. That's what this passage makes clear. And to this suffering, Jesus writes, words of encouragement. And so like last week, I only have one point this week, and I'm going to give it to you 
right off the bat. And that is that the pressure and poverty of our suffering is overcome by the person and power of our Savior. That the pressure and poverty of our suffering is overcome by the person and power of our Savior. In verse 9 of Revelation 2, Jesus writes to this suffering church, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Remember we said last week that the I know section of these oracles to the churches is where Jesus commends the churches for something. And to the church at Smyrna, Jesus says he knows their suffering and their poverty. That word translated affliction is also the word tribulation. Again, that that word that we normally associate with the book of Revelation. And it's the Greek word for pressure. It's a common New Testament expression for persecution and suffering. The connotation is that of being pressed on all sides or crushed by one's circumstances. And the primary pressure that the church at Smyrna seems to be experiencing was economic in nature. Jesus mentions not only their suffering, their affliction, but their poverty. At the time these letters were written in the mid-90s AD, the end of the first century, there was increased pressure to worship the emperor and the civic gods of Rome. And failure to do so would have cost someone their job, would have cost someone their status in society. And that is apparently what was happening to the Christians at Smyrna, This church was poor not merely because the gospel was spreading among the poor of the city, but rather it was poor because acceptance of and faithfulness to the gospel was causing them to be poor. It was producing persecution that was affecting them economically. And Jesus tells us how this persecution was occurring as well because he not only says that he knows their affliction and their poverty, But he says he also knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Before we move on, it needs to be mentioned that unfortunately this verse has been used throughout church history as an excuse for anti-Semitism. And people have interpreted this verse to mean that Jews are satanic or that they are of the devil. But that is not at all what Jesus or John are intending with this verse because After all, Jesus and John were both Jews themselves. Rather, historically, back in the first century, Jews were the one exception to the rule that all of Rome's conquered people had to worship Roman gods. Rome demanded that all the people they conquered, they could go on worshiping their own gods, but they also had to worship Rome's. The Jews were the exception. The Romans left the Jews alone to not worship Roman gods, but to continue their worship of Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the early days of the church, and we know this even from the book of Acts, Rome viewed Christians as a Jewish sect. And so early on, the Romans weren't all that interested in persecuting Christians because they assumed they were just this offshoot of Judaism. And so early persecution in the church was essentially local in nature, some local governments would have persecuted the church, but the Roman Empire itself did not. But what increasingly happened, and what we see even starting in the book of Acts, is that the Jewish leaders start to stir up 
the Roman authorities against Christians, claiming that these Christians were not, in fact, Jews. So while early persecution outside of Judea was often at the hands of Roman authorities, it was often at the instigation of the Jewish authorities. The Jews claimed that the Christians were not really Jews. And so Jesus is really turning their argument on its head in this passage. The Jewish leaders were claiming that Christians were not really Jews. But Jesus is saying that in fact it was the Jewish leaders who were not really Jews. He's referring to the fact that they had rejected him as the Jewish Messiah. That they had completely missed the point of their faith. And we see this even in John's Gospel where Jesus repeatedly condemns the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in the Gospel of John for being devoted to the Scriptures, for knowing the Scriptures inside and out, and yet missing the fact that they all pointed to Him as the coming Messiah. It was the Christians, according to Jesus in this passage, even the Gentile Christians, who had really come to understand what the Jewish faith and the Jewish Scriptures were talking about. And in calling the Jews a synagogue of Satan, Jesus is, again, not calling the Jews satanic, but rather pointing out how they were treating the church at Smyrna. The word Satan comes from the Hebrew word Satan, which means the adversary. And the Jewish population of Smyrna was the primary adversary of the Christian population in Smyrna. But later in Revelation, John will also refer to Satan as the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before God day and night. And that's essentially what the Jewish population of Smyrna was doing to the church. They were accusing them before the Roman authorities day and night in order to bring them to judgment. And so the Jewish leaders were treating the church at Smyrna just like Satan treats believers before the throne of God. In fact, church history tells us that 60 years after this book is written, in the mid-2nd century, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John's and who was by then Bishop of Smyrna, was burned at the stake for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. And the story goes that it was the Jewish population of the city who brought the wood for the pyre to burn Polycarp at the stake, despite the fact that it was the Sabbath and they were violating the command not to work on the Sabbath by bringing the wood. And so it was the slander at the hands of the Jews that was the primary source of the persecution and poverty of the church at Smyrna. And this shouldn't be surprising considering elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Peter, we see at least six times the Apostle Peter lists slander and false accusations as the most basic persecution his readers would face. And we see that, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2.12, where the apostle says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you, not if they slander you, when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And so Jesus comforts the church at Smyrna by assuring them that he knows exactly what is going on. The local authorities may be fooled, but Jesus is not. He knows who the true believers are. He knows who the true church is. And he knows when his people are suffering and what, why it is 
that they are suffering, what the cause of that suffering is. But I want to make one more point for those of us living in the 21st century here before we move on. Because John uses a specific word for slander, one that's different from the word that Peter uses in his epistle. He uses the Greek word blasphemia, which when directed towards God, of course, connotes what we typically call blasphemy. And the ideas are connected. And what we should understand what John is getting at, what Jesus is getting at, is that a primary way to blaspheme God is to slander his people. A primary way to blaspheme God is to slander his people. And Jesus' words, therefore, for us become not only a comfort, but a challenge, because this should dictate how we speak to and about other believers. Because notice what Jesus is saying here. Those who slander God's people blaspheme God. And those who accuse God's people stand on the side of Satan the adversary rather than Jesus the Messiah. And all it really takes is a quick jump onto social media, to Facebook or Twitter, and see how Christians interact with each other to see all of the slander that goes on in the name of Christ. And yet Christ's comfort and encouragement to the church at Smyrna is that he knows that those who are slandering them are on the side of the adversary and not on his side. It is the the suffering believers who are on his side. It is those who are slandering them who are on the side of the accuser and the adversary. And this is the point that Jesus is making in verse 9. Not that the Jews are from Satan, not that they're satanic, but rather that people who think they are believers or who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, but who spend their time slandering and accusing his people, are really just doing the work of Satan himself. And again, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of people under the guise of evangelicalism who spend all their time doing exactly that, calling themselves discernment bloggers or whatever else it may be, but going on the attack to slander their brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather than assuming the best and acting with humility, we tend to see ourselves as soldiers for Christ who need to win at all costs. And we would rather risk taking out allies with friendly fire than allowing a potential enemy to escape. We tear each other apart, even as we said last week, over the silliest of things. Disputes, not even over secondary or tertiary doctrines, much less primary doctrines, but over conscience issues or preference issues, like what version of the Bible we should read or whether we should sing hymns or praise songs or what color the carpet should be or what kind of ministry the church should start for outreach. And may it never be said of us as individual Christians, as churches, or as the American church as a whole, that we were a congregation of Satan, that we took up sides with the accuser against the Messiah's people. But Jesus moves on then from how they were suffering, what the cause of their suffering was, why they were suffering, to the fact that Jesus actually commends them for suffering. The fact that they were afflicted and poor was reason for being commended by Christ. 
This is what was praiseworthy about the church of Smyrna. They suffered. And it not only commends them, but he, Jesus says that they were rich because of their suffering. And it's easy for us in the 21st century to kind of hyper-spiritualize this and think, well, of course they were rich. They have all those heavenly blessings waiting for them. But Jesus doesn't rush past their physical suffering on in to heavenly blessings. He doesn't follow up the declaration that they are rich by mentioning their eternal reward, but rather by further describing their suffering by mentioning the slander that they had experienced. In other words, Jesus is saying the exact opposite of what we in the American church often teach. He's saying that suffering for his sake is itself a blessing. He's echoing what he said back in chapter 1. He's saying that he was dead but is alive forever and ever in, back in chapter 1. And so suffering and even death itself are merely gateways to resurrection life. And we see this throughout Scripture. Paul in Philippians 1.21, a verse that we often memorize and quote, but don't really ever live, is where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's not being morbid with saying that to die is gain, but he's saying that he understands that dying is gain because death means new resurrection life and eternity with Christ. Similarly, a couple chapters later in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. These verses floor me every time I read them because how often do we say that our goal is to know Christ so intimately that we know not only the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of of his sufferings, that we so long for Christ and his resurrected life to be manifested in us that we are willing, not only willing, but our goal is to be conformed to his death. Or the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, 13 said, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. And again, how often do we rejoice as we share in the sufferings of Christ. I'm recording this mid-April 2020. We have just gone through Easter week a couple weeks ago. We just focused on the sufferings of Christ. And Peter says, when you share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. And yet, when I stub my toe getting out of bed in the morning, I don't rejoice over such slight suffering. And yet what we see in the New Testament is the life of Christ being so real to the apostles that it would help them endure, and not only endure, but rejoice in their suffering. And this is so contrary to the American Christian life, where we are so focused on comfort. If the air conditioning is out on Sunday, if our favorite pew is gone, if we have to sit on uncomfortable chairs, we get all up in arms. But one of the things that we must grasp as we read through these oracles, and if you read all seven of them in Revelation 2 and 3, from beginning to end, and you read through them all in one sitting, you'll notice that the only two churches that Jesus does not rebuke, that he finds nothing wrong with, are the two churches who are suffering, including here the church at Smyrna. 
And similarly, the two churches Jesus most harshly rebukes with no encouraging words are the two churches who were the wealthiest and the most physically prosperous. Spiritual wealth and worldly wealth are often in opposition to each other. We are often put in the position where we can have one or the other, but not both. Jesus himself said in a famous illustration that we often interpret wrongly, he said it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. And he's not referring to some small gate in the city walls in Jerusalem. Uh, There was no gate called the eye of the needle. He is talking about a literal needle's eye. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom, to enter the kingdom. And that's because our worldly wealth so often gets in the way of us seeing our spiritual wealth. Our worldly wealth gets in the way of us desiring spiritual wealth. And so Grant Osborne, in writing on this passage, says we must examine our priorities. Do we prefer the temporary riches of this world or the eternal riches of God? And Jesus encourages the church at Smyrna not only that they had preferred the eternal riches of God, but he encouraged them to continue to prefer the eternal riches of God. He tells them not only that their affliction and poverty actually make them rich, then he goes on to say that they are about to get even richer. The first half of verse 10, he says, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. So he commends them for all this suffering that they are doing and then says, don't be afraid, but more suffering is coming. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Prison in the ancient world wasn't like prison in modern times. In modern times, prison is a punishment itself. When someone is convicted of a crime, we send them to prison to serve a sentence. But in the ancient world, prison was a temporary spot where an accused criminal would be held until he was tried and convicted and given a sentence. And of course, even from reading scripture, you know that the typical sentence would be things like either execution or cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye or taking some kind of financial retribution. There was a real physical consequence and prison was just where you waited until you were given that real physical consequence. And so Jesus said, you're about to be held in prison awaiting some kind of verdict. And the time frame is 10 days, which appears to be a call back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. Where in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are told that they have to eat all of these foods that were contrary to the Old Testament laws. And they refuse and they ask the guard to give them fruits and vegetables and the guards are afraid that they will waste away and that they will then be the ones in trouble for not forcing them to eat all of the meats and other foods that Daniel was refusing. And so Daniel and his friends asked the guard, well, give us 10 days. Feed us nothing but fruits and vegetables for 10 days and see what we're like. And they were healthier than any of the other captives. And so they allowed Daniel and his friends to not eat the food that was unlawful for them to eat. And so Jesus is reassuring the church at Smyrna, yes, you will be tested with suffering, but that testing and that suffering will be temporary. However, notice what he says in the second part of verse 10. Right after saying your testing will be temporary, it'll only go on 
for 10 days for this specific amount of time. He then goes on to say, be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. And here's the point that Jesus is making in verse 10. All suffering is temporary suffering, even when it ends in death. All suffering is temporary suffering. Whatever it is we're going through right now, and again, we are in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, but even if you're watching this much after the fact, whatever suffering you are going through now is temporary, even if that suffering ends in your death. That is the comfort that Jesus gives. And in many ways, it's very similar to the comfort that Job receives in his suffering. For Job, his comfort was God showing up and revealing his sovereignty over all things, including his suffering. And for the church at Smyrna, the comfort is Jesus showing up and revealing his sovereignty over all things, including their suffering. And not only that, but his victory over it as well. In verse 8, we see that in the way that Jesus introduces himself to the church at Smyrna, where it says, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Jesus introduces himself as he did back in chapter 1 as the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the source of all things and the goal to which all things are headed. And the point seems to be that if Jesus is the beginning of all things and he is the end of all things, then he can be trusted with all of the stuff in the middle, including our suffering. But he is also the one who was dead and came to life. This is the Christian hope when facing death. We have a Savior who has already defeated death. And this introduction, again, is a call back to chapter 1, where in verse 18 he had introduced himself as the living one and then said, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And there are a couple of slight but important differences between the two. In chapter 1, verse 18, the focus is on the fact that Jesus currently lives. He says, I am alive forever and ever. In chapter 2, verse 8, however, the focus is on the actual event of his resurrection. He says, I came to life. Here, to a church living under constant threat of death, Jesus gives the reminder that he too once died. That he too was even persecuted and slandered and killed at the hands of evil men. But that he had come to life again. And so the church at Smyrna had hope that they too would come to life again. One of my favorite sermons throughout church history is John Chrysostom's Easter homily. Where it closes with the great church father saying, let no one fear death for the death of our savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has despoiled Hades by going down into its kingdom. He has angered it by allowing it to taste of his flesh. Hades is angered because frustrated. It is angered because it has been mocked. It is angered because it has been destroyed. It is angered because it has been reduced to naught. It is angered because it is now captive. It seized a body and lo, it encountered heaven. 
It seized the visible and was overcome by the invisible. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are abolished. Christ is risen and the demons are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is freed. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of the dead. For Christ, being risen from the dead, has become the leader and reviver of those who had fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And that is why Jesus can then promise that if the Christians at Smyrna would be faithful even to the point of death, that he would give them the crown of life. Because he has already won the crown of life. It is his possession, and therefore he can give it to whomever he wishes. Jesus' half-brother James says the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Those who endure to the end, those who persevere to the end, who remain faithful even through suffering, even in death, receive the crown of life because that is what the Christian life is. As John said back in chapter 1, the Christian life is affliction, kingdom, and endurance. We experience the kingdom of Christ as we endure through affliction. And then Jesus goes on in Revelation 2, verse 11, to say, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. The second death is the negative of eternal life. Those who are in Christ experience eternal life. Both qualitatively, we experience his eternal life living in us and through us now, but also in terms of quantity, we will live forever and ever. But those who are not in Christ do not experience eternal life. Instead, they experience the second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Notice how the situation that the church at Smyrna found itself in as Jesus is writing this letter is now completely turned on its flip side. The church at Smyrna were being persecuted and even put to death by sinful and corrupt Jewish and Roman rulers. But through their faithfulness, even to the point of death, they would be saved from the second death, given the crown of life, and would reign as priest kings with Christ. Having been slandered and persecuted by corrupt human regimes, they would now rule with Christ in his righteous and eternal reign. And this is what we so often forget about what we are given when we are given Christ. Back in the passage I quoted from John Chrysostom's Easter homily, he had said, let no one fear death for the death of our Savior has set us free. And we so often believe that we're set free merely from sins, merely from those 
life-dominating things that, that cause us so much trouble both to ourselves and to others. But the refrain of Scripture is that we are set free not just from our sins, but from death itself. Forgiveness of sins is not the end of the gospel, it's the means of the gospel. The end of the gospel, what the gospel ultimately is headed towards, is what we lost back in the Garden of Eden, eternal and perfect fellowship with God. And that is what the church at Smyrna is promised. That is what we are promised. That is what we set forth as the goal when we are going through trials and tribulation, when we are suffering, whatever the cause of that suffering is. We know that Christ's death and resurrection has set us free, not just from our sin, but from death itself. We are given his life now here, and we will get it completely and fully in the life to come when we live in perfect fellowship with him. That's why Jesus could say back even in his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. In other words, don't focus on what the earthly consequences are, whether that is persecution that we're facing or whether that's just the earthly consequences that come of living in a fallen world with viruses and diseases and the loss of jobs and the death of loved ones and all the other sufferings that we go through. We do not fear man because we fear, we reverence, we stand in awe of God who holds our eternal future in his hands. What the church at Smyrna is comforted with is that we have a Savior who has not only faced death, but experienced death, and not only experienced death, but conquered death. We have a Savior who has the authority over death and Hades, and therefore all suffering is temporary suffering, even if it results in death. For the pressure and poverty of our suffering is overcome by the person and the power of our Savior. Thank you for joining me as we've looked at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna. Next week, we will look at Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17, Christ's letter to the church at Pergamum.